Environmental justice Q&A. Describe the state of environmental justice in Australia. With regards to the impact of environmental disasters on already disenfranchised peoples, we have several examples local to Australia. For example, Adani in Queensland suing and pursuing the bankruptcy of traditional owners, fracking the Northern Territory, approval of nuclear waste dump in Western Australia, drilling the Great Australian Bight, though that has been put on hold for now, making protesting illegal in the Tasmanian Tarkine, building a coal mine in Central Coast, selling water off the Murray-Darling Basin, and defunding the RFS, National Parks and Wildlife Service, and research into bushfires. The motivations for such decisions appear to be the appear to be the exercising of power by the richest and most powerful into keeping the monopoly of societal control through ever-increasing environmental exploitation. Nature seen in these terms is valuable only for the resources it provides rather than for any intrinsic or ecosystem benefit. The irony here is that the seeking of endless economical growth that paradoxically results in total environmental destruction. Reduction, reuse and recycle are the typical policies tutored as solutions, but a long-term strategy has a complete transformation in how we use stuff and the amount that we share versus accumulate. Are we impacted by environmental racism? Is environmental ecocide also racist? I think only incidentally so, in as far as there is a coincidental colonialist distribution of power, i.e. in Australia and America, whites are the ones already in power and the indigenous former slaves are the ones suffering from historical dispossession. I'm unsure that environmental racism here is a useful concept, as any racism seems to me to be inadvertent, although I'm beginning to question that. However, awareness that those who are already dispossessed are the most vulnerable to environmental decision makings is a critical insight. Instead of being racially toned, let's recognise that our impact on the environment affects animals first and foremost, followed by those who are poor, which, let's face it, is often racially toned, and ending with impacting on those who are already, who are wealthy. How will environmental justice be achieved? The polluter pays principle is a recognised plank in the framework of it in international environmental law as set out by the United Nations. And there have been attempts in implementing it via various taxes, for example, the carbon tax, plastic pollution tax. There has also been an attempt to advocate for sugar tax to help fund the effect, effort of the health sector to combat obesity and diabetes. The problem with Im implementation is that the legislative bodies are far more receptive to a moneyed up corporate lobbyists than to any appeal to public interest. These international principles need a watchdog with teeth to ensure that they are truly implemented in the manner that would ensure maximal public good. Describe your personal perception of place. My personal perception of place is rooted on shaky foundations. I have convict ancestry on both sides and so I'm fully aware that though I love Australia and feel strongly for its vegetation and fauna, my ancestors were directly involved with destroying this land and dispossessing the culture that protected it. That knowledge brings with it a burden of responsibility to fight against the injustice that my heritage is linked with. 
Personally, I enjoy privilege. Living in the leafy shores of Mossman, near the beach in the city, I'm removed from all class struggle. My quality of life is guaranteed, but at the cost of being part of a system that continues a tradition of dispossession and destruction. Being able to go to university multiple times, my first degree in journalism and an unfinished one in psychology, and TAFE, as well as being private school performing arts school educated, all while being supported by family, is a continuation of that same privilege. Even if the choice of studies is squarely aimed at tearing all of those unfair structures down, misadventure through mental illness was not enough to counter my privilege, only delaying the full realization of it for a few years. Can a place be simultaneously just and unjust? Difference of opinion of what equity entails is responsible for place being seen as simultaneously just and unjust by different parties. For example, westernised concepts of environmental equity is framed around anthropomorphic rights, the right to clean water, to food, to shelter, and to access to all sorts of environmental goods the land can provide. The same place, delivering all these goods, can be simultaneously viewed as unjust from an intrinsic value of nature perspective. That is, that natural ecosystems have a right to exist without alteration or interference, interference that easily occurs when ensuring the delivery of human-centred rights. Most of colonised Australia serves as a great example. Suburbs may be clean, infrastructure, for example, access to schools, hospitals, food, equitable, Recognition and participation guaranteed, though it is important to note that very little of Australian society delivers on all these socially just virtues. But the very establishment of the society is funded on genocide of Indigenous people and ecocide of its environments. In this way, justice is a temporal as well as purely distributive notion. Describe the relationship between place and people in Indigenous cultures. Our current concept of environmental justice is rooted to attachment of place, specifically the unmodified or least modified green spaces and faunal populations. We pick and choose what has value and what does not through a westernised frame of utility or derived pleasure. Our choices are framed by the selection of places we have left, as well as our values, politics, age and gender, but they are specific and not general in nature. For attachment of place to take on a general dimension requires the recognition of the intrinsic rights of, a, of nature and a paradigm shift that sees our species as sharing and participating in an environment instead of apart and above that environment. In this way, the Indigenous, already endowed with a holistic view of nature and the interrelationships between people and place, can play a critical role in providing a template for true environmental justice, that is, real equity. Australian Indigenous, already seeing themselves as part of the land and water bodies, culturally and spiritually, would have therefore been deeply impacted by the wanton and total destruction of these culturally significant places, suffering what Albrecht, 2007, terms as solastalgia, though specific Indigenous groups would have cultural sites specific to only them, this form of place attachment differs from that of Westerners, as those places are a symbolic manifestation of a na nature that is deeply respected and protected, instead of a place to be spared exploitation. Describe the significance of Indigenous knowledge. The Indigenous of Australia have lived sustainably on this land for over 60,000 years, with over 200 nations coexisting in relative peace. Those statistics alone create a compelling argument for empowering the, vo 
empowering their voices as the protectors of Australia. Beyond that, Dark Emu, Bruce Pascoe, argues that there is, a, there is archaeological evidence of Indigenous using sophisticated farming techniques. They certainly controlled the land through use of fire, transforming the previously rainforested country into one dominated by eucalypts, overseeing floral and faunal cycles to provide stewardship over an environmental flourishing land. Since passing into colonial hands, Australia has been deforested, mined, fracked, dried up, injected with millions of tonnes of chemical waste and largely transformed into low productivity pastoral land. Given the gross mismanagement of country by white people, the very first step is inclusion of Aboriginal knowledge. More critical is the enshrinement of voice and willingness to listen and learn from Indigenous land management techniques and wisdoms. Ponder on environmental decision making. Environmental decision-making, according to Hardy et al. 2009, is embedded in all other decision-making as human systems overlap, interact, affect, and are affected by environmental systems. Walker and Salt, 2012, stressed the necessity of being aware of the dynamics, scope, and scale of systems in order to have good predicative predictive capacity surrounding environmental decision-making and make the decisions most likely to affect resilience in the direction you see. Natural and human systems are complex, but policy decisions regarding these systems are by need complicated. Complex in this case meaning many overlapping and interacting variables with varying outcomes possible, and complicated meaning multiple steps towards a single outcome. Policy decisions regarding systems that are framed by process are framed by processes of identifying, then analysing, then assessing instruments, then consulting, then coordinating, and then lastly making policy decisions before doing the whole process again, according to Hardy et al. 2009. Our modern world contains a spectrum of environmentally critical issues that require thinking about through a systems view in order to achieve best-case solutions. Modern issues requiring environmental management decision-making include, but not, are not limited to, deforestation, food security and wastage, energy production, the Murray-Darling River catchment, eutrophication, water, sh water shortages, Great Barrier Reef and its coral bleaching, seasonal bushfires and fish stock management. These issues are all complex, interconnected, and urgent in their need to be addressed. I think the decision to engage with such critical issues reflects engagement with societal problems and a willingness to step up and do some creative thinking regarding that resolution. Dan Pink studies human behaviour and has produced six books on the subject, and according to him, the secret to motivation lies in autonomy, mastery, and purpose. He has a TED Talk, which has been animated, where he mentions Atlassian as a company that unleashes their staff once every quarter to allow them to put their minds to what a complex issue or new idea they choose, which has resulted in some incredible problem solving, solving and a heightened creativity of ideas. Society has a lot of complex environmental problems that our generation and those who come after us are going to have to step up to fix, and being able to reclaim our power to think critically and creatively about these problems is vital. Another great video from the late David Foster Wallace on critical thinking is found on YouTube. One of the outcomes of coronavirus lockdown has been $160 
billion package, this was written a couple of months ago, passed by both sides of the government with the intent of kickstarting the economy. Though this package explicitly excludes casual workers working at their jobs for less than 12 months, migrant workers and carers, and migrant workers and carers. A majority of young people fall into the first category and a lot of students into the second. It is these young, educated people that will hold the government to account for its recklessness with climate policy. If we've learned anything about resilient thinking, it's that the government is probably destabilising the economy by leaving this 3 million proportion of people of proportion of society behind. That decision is going to affect the government more than anyone else let it crumble, let it break, let's replace it with something better. Define environmental resilience. Resilience is a dynamic construct, one which sets parameters or thresholds around an equilibrium state, beyond which that state is changed totally. Lesser resilience makes those parameters smaller and makes the slightest deviation or obstacle able to have transformative consequences, whereas larger parameters allows a wide suite of disturbances without losing equilibrium. Describe a system which has had its resilience compromised by COVID-19. I was going to go with global supply systems for this question, as it certainly fits the criteria. However, to me, a more interesting understanding of resilience pertains to an individual's mental health. According to Maslow's 1943 hierarchy of needs, a person's mental health is dependent upon physiological, safety, belonging, esteem, and lastly, self-actualization needs. More contemporary studies endorse the need for a person to have strong emotional and social connections, daily exercise, good nutrition, and access to shelter. Increasing mental health incidents within Western societies has also shown that times of disruption and existential crisis, such as ours, are also triggering for a variety of disorders, for example, anxiety, depression, and psychosis. So I would add that a person needs a sense of hope, purpose, and stability. Fundamentally, COVID-19 is a great disruptor of people being able to meet their mental health needs. Access to shelter and ability to sustain increasingly expensive positive nutritional habits is being severely stressed. Long-term adaptation will ideally not be necessary, as right now the virus is stressing society and individuals within it to the edges of their capacity for resilience. Describe a personal example of environmental justice storytelling. In 2017, I worked as a conference producer. That is, I created the agenda for specific corporate events, enlisting the speakers, writing copy, and setting up brochures. As part of the production process, we had to pick a cert pitch a certain topic to the general manager, framing it in terms of commercial viability, i.e. how will this knowledge ensure business success and or prevent failure. I felt very strongly about the environment at the time and was interested in the impact of the corporate community via CSR, corporate social responsibility, could have in shifting Australia towards greener ways of living and doing business. I argued at the time that, just as inclusion and diversity had succeeded in making specific businesses recognisably competitive for employees to work workfall, consumers were going to begin to start preferencing demonstrably ethical businesses and early position, positioning in this space could have recognisable brand impact. At the time, I was unsuccessful at pitching this as a viable attempt a viable event, where's the money? But it did provide the catalyst for me to return to university in order to specialise in this area. 
In this example, I was confronted by an entrenched cultural context where the dominant mode of storytelling, as described by Houston and Pavithra, 2012, page 242, did not allow for the capacity of consideration of a triple bottom line, which was an overall disempowering and suffocating experience. Describe an environmental hazard that has that impacts psychological health. The question to me asked for the sorry. <laughs> I can think of a number of examples. The loss of green spaces for rest and recreation as our cities get increasingly overcrowded, the building up of the city's skyline causing sound and visual pollution, the casualization of work not specifically caused by an environmental hazard, belts of fast food restaurants and lack of footpaths in outer metropolitan areas, and the loss of local waterways to commercial trawlers, destroying the natural habitat, decimating fish populations, and strangling the local marine economy based around local fishing and tourism. Should your ethnicity have more of a voice in environmental decision-making? This question, to me, asks for the subjective ethnic voice to trump objective decision-making, the right thing to do. My ethnicity and ancestry, personally, convict English, are responsible for both historical genocide, continuing colonial dispossession and ecocide. My, eth my ethnicity needs less dominance in advocacy and more humility to live within its means and allow a range of other voices to emerge in decision-making. Should Indigenous landowners have absolute rights over their traditional lands? My opinion is that empowering Indigenous rights and providing restitution for previous injustices helps to strengthen a culture equipped to better protect and manage this land. However, I acknowledge the temptation to create a binary value system where colonial equals bad and Indigenous equals good. Landscapes have totally changed since initial colonisation and Indigenous populations have been similar, similarly decimated. It is impractical to hand over total power to 3% of the population, but embedding their values of collaboration, responsibility, care and compassion, all of which enables protection of land and people in a shared cultural context, is critical. Such an outlet, outlook would require Western colonial culture to have certain humility when living, learning different cultural ways, which I think is a positive outcome for both cultures. What if Indigenous landowners make poor or environmentally destructive decisions? Democracy demands that every party has a voice in decision-making. It is heartbreaking that a continuing legacy of colonialism is that Indigenous groups have to weigh their own economic survival against the protection of sacred lands. If these groups had the power of native title over these lands, they should have the economic resilience to not be extorted by a system seeking to extract nature of every resource. The vital step here is to include a third plank in environmental decision-making, and that is multi-species justice. If white Australia, Indigenous landowners and environmental rights can work in synchronicity, then the best decisions for both the economy and the environment are sure to be made. To begin with, a moratorium on all continuing, continuing extraction and investment in recycling all goods already extracted and in on their way to landfills. If we can make our economy one of primary reuse and bolster our energy infrastructure with renewables, there's no need for continued habitat slash sacred site destruction. Describe positive partnerships between environmentalists and the Australian Indigenous. There are many examples out there. For example, the Australian story Fighting Fire with Fire, the protagonist of that documentary, Victor Stephenson, who was bringing Indigenous knowledge 
to land management practices is part of an organization called the Fire Sticks Alliance, which delivers workshops to share this knowledge to both Indigenous and non-Indigenous land managers. With regards to development of proposals specifically, the Stop Adani movement is one where both environmentalists and native title owners are united in continued resistance, both legal and physical. Ideally, this unification between the two voices can become more complete as environmentalists recognise that justice for Australia's Indigenous is intimately tied with the ability to obtain and the means to protect its environment. And as we decide as a whole society to reject the toxic system that places the value of empty capital above all else. How do you think we will realise a more sustainable future? I think the key to social transformation is skills-based. If we all knew how to forage or create simple medicines or grow and preserve our own foods, mend our own clothes, build our own engines or furniture from upcycled waste, we could totally transform global systems that are wasteful not only of resources but also of human lives. I see the needs for need for individuals to have less but share more by way of community hubs and libraries where use of sewing equipment, woodworking, welding gear as well as knowledge is shared out in a way that empowers individuals to fulfill their own emotional and physical needs. Do you feel hopeful about the Anthropocene? Why? I do, but in an eyes-open way. I'm mindful of the lure of being complacent, expedient to current and traditional modes of operation, because the site of their destructive impact is either temporarily or spatially removed from myself. I have easy access to a bubble of privilege, but also to education, which enables me to arm my compassion with knowledge and convert it into a weapon of disruption. We might not stand a chance. Either way, what do we have to lose? At the very least, self-respect, a life of practising hope and an ability to reflect back on a life well lived other spoils and no strings attached or corporate agendas that have to be served to make the very act of living fun. Served makes the, act, the very act of living far more pleasurable. What is the most frightening issue we are confronted with in today's world? It's hard to articulate my response to any single issue because what I emotionally respond to has the same foundational root. Fundamentally, I'm moved by having to watch suffering and being powerless to do anything about it. For example, over Black Summer, that is the summer of 2019-2020, I worked taking calls at WISE, which was a wildlife information rescue and education service who handled animal rescues. And the experience was, at times, harrowing. One call I had was from a woman down the south coast who kept animals on her property. There was a fire 10 kilometres away and approaching, but though she could escape, she was terrified for her rabbits, her chickens, the goats and the animals in the bush adjoining her property. She asked if Wise could send down a van to Noah's Ark collect all the animals, which we couldn't because that's not within the framework of our licence and the roads were closed anyway. Reflecting back on it later, I knew that I had been that caller's hope. It might have been the only call that she was able to make besides, and had I had the power to do something, I may have been able to participate in saving some creatures who died or at least suffered immensely that day. Another call I took mentioned that they had experienced a fire and wanted access to wildlife food drops and a shooter to perform compassionate euthanasia for the burned wildlife currently sheltering in their blackened backyard. I was told that this person had literally watched cows explode from the heat and that one fact stuck with me. I am not culpable because I had no power in either of those situations. But the fact that those with power at that time and to mitigate the 
impact of future bushfires are abusing it so blatantly and with such devastating consequences is more than frightening to me. It's a battle cry to action. How dare they? It makes me just as angry to shelter behind apathy because of the spoken complexity of the problems we face as a society are too big, too complex, and we are too powerless. That's not good enough and not even close. The only strategies I can think of as effective is to create an alternative world and alternatives in our world so we are not powerless when it comes to the choices we make, nor owned or forced to take the lesser of two evil options. As Naomi Klein says in No Is Not Enough, we need to create something different. I see that something different as grassroots, decentralized, empowered and democratic. And I can't wait to arrive at that future.